0: Well, it's the Bob and Cowan podcast, yours truly, and John Shannon um, in attendance today. And uh, it- we get, I can see, yeah. we, uh, we get to talk to one of our, uh, our buddies, our pals. Um, Brian Burke is the president of hockey operations for the Pittsburgh Penguins, been around a long time. And Brian's one of those guys, You, I was going to say you either love him or hate him, but I've gone through both. on numerous occasions over the years. We almost came to to blows. I was doing a show at TSN and um, uh, Brian came in and uh, they had to literally pull us apart. We were like nose to nose, ready Mm -hmm. to go at it. and Didn't talk for a number of years and ultimately became good pals. He yelled at me. uh, He yelled at me for about
1: five minutes one day and said, lose my number. There you go. And, And didn't speak to me for eight months.
0: He didn't speak to me for four years. Well, now granted I wasn't chasing him and I didn't have to be in his presence on a regular, that list. was the
1: other problem. every time you went to an arena and the Canucks were there at that point, or, or the flames were there and you saw him
0: lose my number. Well, it's fine. <laughs> uh, Bettman and Burke are the two guys that I've had that situation with in hockey. Yeah. Oh, well, no, wait. There's more now that I think of it. I was going to say, mention them all. Cherry's another one.
1: We should in uh, any event, it'd be a long list. We might
0: have to do a whole show on that one. Oh, uh, I was going to say, no, it isn't. But now I thought of another one. Uh, (laughs) My good friend, our good friend, Brian Burke, when we come back after these messages. Uh, We are back with Shannon and um, from the Pittsburgh Penguins, Brian Burke joins us now. How are you, Burkey? Okay.
2: Good, Bob. Hey, John. How's the fishing? Oh, it was great. I caught a 57 pounder.
1: (laughs) Sure you did. Sure you did. did. (laughs) go
2: ahead. <laughs> I'll send did you it, a picture afterwards.
0: Did it have legs?
2: <laughs> no it was a uh, we're out there first light like six o'clock in the morning and uh, Dave No was fishing with me, hooked up and caught a small one or lost a small one and then I got hit and uh, you could tell it was a big fish right away. It took off like 60 meters of line and I had the rod bent right down into the water almost. So it was a, you know, it was a big fish. So they cleared all the other lines out. We started fighting it. And 45 minutes later, I had it to the boat. We measured it and then released it.
0: Wow. What, what kind of fish?
1: A shrek salmon. Well, I, 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 listen, I, I'm not much of a fisherman, but I do know I wouldn't be out there with you when you said the word 6 a.m. So.
2: Well, they, they get you up. At, we were fishing at Langara Lodge, where I've been going for 30 years. I've taken a lot of NHL guys there over the years, Pat Quinn, Doug Armstrong, Dave Nonis, uh, Doug Riseboro, Kenny Holland, Kevin Lowe, um, goes on and on and on. Uh, it's a place called Langara Lodge in the Haida Gwaii. The Haida Gwaii, for people who don't know, that's what used to be called the Queen Charlotte Islands. Right. So it's an island chain that straddles. It's near Prince Rupert. So it's way up there. It's beautiful. The fishing's great. And Langara's a great spot.
1: Before we start start talking hockey, I uh, I was actually thinking about this this morning. You've lived in you know in Toronto, obviously Calgary, Vancouver, um, Pittsburgh, Anaheim. You you seem to really enjoy the towns you work in. You have you have you celebrate life everywhere you go and take advantage of what all these cities and areas of the country offer you. Well, yeah, you do it better than anybody else I know.
2: Well, I've always, it starts with, right away, uh, it starts with Hartford. I, I, I went to Vancouver in 87 and we, we bought a place, uh, my wife came out at the time, and we bought a place like two days after we got there. And then when I moved back to Hartford, we bought a place like four days after we got there. And then I moved back to Vancouver and bought a place five days after we moved, after we moved back there. Same when I went to Anaheim. Same when I went to Toronto. Same when I went to Calgary, and same in Pittsburgh. So I moved down here. Or I think we came drove down with the pandemic on a on a Monday, and I think I put an offer in, in on my place on Friday. So bought a place in Pittsburgh. Uh, we love it. It's beautiful, beautiful city. Great fans. It's been a lot of fun.
1: So, so, so recreationally, you you uh, you know the fishing and the hunting and. Uh... I, I know you drive around in the golf cart. You don't play golf, but what do you do? What do you What do you do in Pittsburgh?
2: Well, I just had surgery for a hernia, so right now I'm not doing much. I put it off for a couple of years, which is stupid, but uh, finally got it done. But no, I went turkey hunting. Like you can on turkeys here in the month of um, May. I went turkey hunting with uh, Brett Kiesel, a former. Steelers defensive lineman, and uh well that was a lot of fun we didn't get anything but we had fun and then uh there's not much hunting in the summer you can only do uh you know trap shooting or ski shooting so I've got my shooting event uh Berkey's Targets for Kids on uh, August 23rd and just south of Calgary and DeWinton and then we use that to raise money for kids sport and then uh, the hunting will start up again in the fall.
0: Mm. So what's hometown for you? I mean, what's what do you consider home?
2: Is Pittsburgh. it where you happen to be? Pittsburgh, wherever. I make a home wherever I go and I start doing my charity stuff. It's a pattern I've always followed. People appreciate it when you move in. They, like I remember sure. when I moved back to, to Vancouver and everyone's saying to me, oh, would you rent a place? I'm like, no, I bought a condo. And same thing here, I bought a condo, literally, Monday, what's that, four days, five days. Mm -hmm. I made an offer on a place in Pittsburgh where I now live. I make my home wherever I work, and I make friends, and I get involved in the community right away. It's a pattern that's worked for me. It's been fun for me, because you make friends right away. It's not like you're a stranger in a a different country. You move in, you you meet your neighbors, you make friends, and you get involved in the community right away. So it's been fantastic. Pittsburgh's a great city.
1: I was going to say, if there's one city that would embrace Brian Burke, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania is right up your alley, isn't it?
2: Yeah, because it's a resilient city. Like This is a city where the steel industry died off, and you had all kinds of jobs that left, and the Rust Belt, and all this tragedy and adversity. And in Pittsburgh, everyone said, well, we've got to replace this business with other things. So we've built up a thriving tech industry. Uh, a a great medical practice around it. And uh, so healthcare is big here, tech's big here. But what's lost is, and you don't don't see it when you play here. I would come in and play the Penguins, and we'd go from the airport to the hotel, to the rink, and then back to the airport. What you lost here is great community, great people, Mm -hmm. great sports town, like one of the best sports towns in the world, if not the best. Uh, Huge following for the Steelers. Uh, great following for the for the, the uh, Pirates, and the, and obviously we've got a great following. So great sports town, people are wonderful. I, I I will tell you one thing: no one's honked their horn at me yet since I moved here. And like I know when I lived in Boston or lived in Toronto, if you're slow at the light, they honk the horn here. And here it's people wait for the the
1: light to change. It's nice. You, you you talked about being involved in the community that's something that when you were a manager of a team and I'm I would assume in your current role that was an expectation you had of your players too correct yes I
2: was uh, one thing when I first came my first team job was Vancouver and the Griffiths family owned the team at that time and they were already big on community involvement and you know I, they started to connect place after I'd been there for a while and it's still there I actually When I came back from Langara on Saturday fishing, I dropped three fish off at Canuck Place. They have a a salmon barbecue for the families the next day. I've been doing that ever since I've been fishing here. So um, it started with the Griffiths family, and then we took it to a much higher level. And now, yeah, it's been part of what I expect my teams to do It's part of the fabric of where we live. But that was all in place when I got here in Pittsburgh. David Morehouse was the CEO. And that was a, a staple when I got here. So we're just trying to build on that.
0: Now, I know you kept your residence in Toronto for a long time. And you still got it?
2: No, I've got a place. I rented a place in Toronto, but no, I no longer own that home.
0: Oh, okay.
1: That was a good spot. Yeah, it was. You mean know, sit on great. the back deck and watch the birds, right? Yep. It was perfect.
0: Well, let's, uh, let's get to uh, the business of the game. Um, before we get to specifics on, on your team. This is a time of year where um, I know the action in terms of players is pretty much done, but there's still a lot to do here. And one of the issues in the midst, since the pandemic, which I guess is ongoing uh, is the cap and a flat cap for the next while. Still, what can you do to maneuver your way through that? And is that, is that like an all-encompassing kind of focus for you at this time of year, especially?
2: Well, I was working in Anaheim. I had just taken the job when the salary cap came in, and I remember they flew us. The league flew me, Mike Shulman. uh, I think that was it. Maybe uh, Tim Ryan might have gone too. To, the, the league wanted to explain the salary cap to us and how it worked. And it was clear at that time it was a sea change for guys like me where... There was no salary cap, and you could make a deal, and you could go over or under whatever. There was never any discussion yeah. of can you fit this guy in. It's it's all about your budget. So guys like me that came up with teams that watched the money, we've always had a cap, but we called it a budget. And you could go over a little bit, but yeah, I remember one, a huge trade that I was going to make in Anaheim involving Keith, uh, Keith Kachuk was vetoed by ownership because of the salary cap. They said, we're not going to interfere – in your decisions as far as the hockey team, but that will put us over by a million bucks. You can't do it. So we've always had a cap. Even when I worked in Vancouver, even when I worked for Pat Quinn, it was called a budget. So it hasn't been that difficult. Uh, The better your team is, the more cap issues you have. And we've been a competitive team. We've won two cups. We've been in the playoffs for 16 straight years, unmatched number of teams in the, in the cap era. And uh, we've, we've, been an excellent team and the fact of the matter is that produces heartache for you on the cap so we've been up against the cap since i got here and we still are but it's the cap is the greatest thing that's happened in pro sports in, in the nhl for sure and we have to live with it
0: well one of the things that i think you've been a proponent of that is talked about is the ability or lack of an ability to trade cap space. Cause there are teams and there always are teams that are, you know, well below the cap and sometimes have to get to the minimum. And it's been discussed the ability of, of teams to simply trade cap space. Is there any progress on that?
2: Um, I think it, in effect, that's what happens now. I think mm-hmm. if you look at these deals, like, you know, for example, if you have a player at the, at the, at the uh, at free agency, one team was looking to move a $5 million player, and the price tag was a first-round pick. Yes, we'll take that player, but you have to include a first-round pick. Well, that's buying cap space, in my mind. So in, in practical effect, it's happened. Can you flat-out trade cap space for an asset? I don't think the league would allow that yet, but it, in effect, that's exactly what happens.
0: So you don't propose necessarily a dramatic change in the rules and regulations?
2: No, I don't think so. I think everything's worked pretty well. People can complain about uh, LTIR, the long-term injury reserve, and and that is a problem. It was a problem with the first cup team and the second cup team in in Tampa. Uh, But the league said all the rules were followed, and that's the system we live in. So I, I think the system works great.
0: So when you negotiate, when you're in the midst of negotiating a contract, how often does cap space come up or the limitations of the cap in those discussions with the agent?
2: Um, about every 60 seconds. I mean, the <laughs> fact of the matter is, yeah. it's, it's something you can't go over. You can go over in the offseason, but you can't be over once the season begins. So it's not like it's negotiable. You've got to hit your number. So it's a constant. If your team's a good team like we are, and we are bumping up against the cap, it, it, it dominates and occupies our thinking 24 seven talk about it all the time
1: so you and Ron the discussions bef- I mean your are two big signings this offseason were getting Chris Letang and, and and Evgeny Malkin back uh under contract um how did how would the internal discussions have gone to make sure that these guys could understand that you have cap issues
2: Well, I I think players understand it. the issue would be if you're a good enough player, that's really their problem. In other words, if you're a star player, if you're Nazem Kadri, say, or, uh, you know, like another player like John Klingberg, the the cap is, that's your problem. If if you play for Dallas and and you can't sign this guy because that's your problem. The better your team is, the more cap issues you have and you have to deal with them. So Tampa wins the first cup and then, they got to trade Coleman. They got to trade Gaudreau. That, that's the way it works. So, um, with us, the discussions would be okay, a team would call and say, We're interested in John Shannon. And of course, we wouldn't be. But if we were, why not? We'd say, <laughs> we'd say <laughs> All right, what does he cost? What can you take back if it puts us over? So, the, the discussions center on what you can afford. So, you'd say the players who are both unrestricted free agents in Chris Latag's case. In Evgeny Malkin's case, it was like, all right, how can we make this work where you come in at a salary that makes sense and you have to work with us on it? So what went down with both players is a little more term probably than guys their age would normally command, but it's salaries that worked within the cap for us.
0: So, so the, that, you you will diminish the salary in the later part of the deal. Is that accurate?
2: No, even if it's a flat deal, it's, it's not so much diminished, but it if, you're, if a guy says, I want, just to make the math easy, I want $30 million for the next three years, mm-hmm. $10 million a year. If you say, well, we can do it over the next four years, and the cap bit drops down proportionally, that might make sense. So that, that's the type of negotiation that goes on, and that's what we had to do with our two guys.
1: So what would you say to the critics and say, oh, God, they gave them an extra year, and both of them are going to be close to 40 when they're done? I mean, come on, Brian, what are you doing? Well, I think with both players, I mean, you're talking about both players have had exceptional
2: careers. Both have been largely injury-free the last couple of years. Malkin, a notable dis- uh, uh, distinction there that he missed half of each of the last two years. But in his career, he's been available for play. Remember the greatest, the old cliche, the number one ability for a player is availability. And they've been available and they've been really key players for us. They're both great guys. So, yeah, we're, we're, that's the concession we made to make it work, keep the group together, and take one more run at it.
1: How, how, do, you, how do you balance loyalty versus on-ice effectiveness?
2: Well, I, I think you have to – everything has a value. So, at some point, if a player asks for too much money, he's not coming back. Then at that point, your loyalty has to be secondary to what works for the team financially. So every negotiation, you're keeping that in the back of your mind. The guy who wants $15 million a year is not coming back here. So the fact of the matter is that's the balancing act you, you undergo whenever you deal with these players. You're talking about two pretty serious players, pretty important players, and not just for the Pittsburgh Penguins. These are guys that could go almost anywhere and make a contribution.
1: How, how, much, should, how much did Sid get involved in, in helping you?
2: Not much. Just uh, Sid's great. Like he's he's a great asset to us. Hexy keeps him involved because he is the captain. He keeps him informed. But as far as being involved or saying yes or no or maybe you could do this or do that, that doesn't happen. Sid doesn't want that on him.
0: With Brian Burke, um, do you have limitations on incentives that you can offer? Yep. Oh yeah. And, and are you in favor of incentives? Do you try and maximize those incentives, at least where appropriate?
2: Yeah, you can use them in certain circumstances. They're not available to all players, but you can use them in certain circumstances,
0: yes. And would you be a, more of a proponent of individual incentives rather than team incentives, or is it invariably a combination?
2: It, it's That would take a whole podcast to talk about, um, in general, it's a last resort in my mind. You just do a contract if you can. You don't worry about that.
1: But, but those, are, those are scenarios, entry-level deals and players over 35, correct? Yes. So, yeah. so we actually would have to fly to New York and have them explain the salary cap to us for, to understand it, I think. Yeah, I,
2: it, it's not worth wasting time on this, this podcast to talk about that.
1: <laughs> there he is. Now he's running our podcast, Bob.
0: Yeah, well, we appreciate the help. You know, you can always use assistance, especially from Brian Burke.
1: <laughs> well, I got to
2: waste time talking about individual player bonuses with Bob McCown and John Shannon, two guys that have much bigger fish to fry.
1: So, okay, so um, I, I, I've been a Mike Matheson fan since he played junior hockey. Um, he, he seemed to come into his own in your town, in Pittsburgh. He played much better than he did in Florida, but. Is Jeff Petrie that much better, or how, how do you how do you how do you justify that trade?
2: Well, we view it. We view Jeff Petrie as an upgrade on our team for sure. And we tried desperately to do this deal without Mike Matheson. We love Mike. Mike's a great kid. Yeah, and he's a really good hockey player. But you can't get value without giving up value. We think this is an upgrade for us. There are different shots. Petrie's a right shot, and Matheson's a left shot. Different sizes. So we think this is an upgrade. We're really excited about Jeff Beecher. But we didn't like having to put Mike in the deal, but that's the way it came down.
0: And you moved Marino as well, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah, for Marino, for Ty Smith. Ty Smith is a guy we're really excited about. He was a half a point a game. As a rookie, he was on the all-rookie team. Then he stumbled a little bit last year, but their team did. I don't think Ty did so much. And uh, we think we're really excited about having Ty in the lineup on left shot you can run a power play. We think he's a, a a gem that really hasn't popped yet. We talk about a guy popping, a guy popping is a guy who shows up and starts to play at the level you thought when you drafted him. And he he looked like he popped his first year, stumbled a bit second year. And uh, we're excited about him going forward.
1: Well, well, the other, the other option there is uh, the other issue there is, is that here's a guy that was a high first round pick. and You know, the Penguins have not been in that high first-round pick world for 15 years. To be able to find a way early in his career to get him to play on your team is kind of re-seeding your team, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it is, if we're right. If we're we're right on tie, and I'm confident we're going to be. We believe in this player. We believe his body of work in junior was phenomenal. His first year probably looked really good. We we think we have a young player who's going to just get better.
1: So how, how would those discussions go before the trade's made? You know, how would you and Ron and, and Ron discuss with the scouts and with the, the with the player personnel people about Smith? How many disc- talks would there have been about that?
2: Well, John, let's start with John Marino. John Marino's a great kid. Yep. He's a right shot defenseman. He's a really good player. We would have loved to do this deal without putting him in or Mike Matheson, in, but that's not how it works. And so in this case, it was like, all right, what's our body of work scouting go back to his, his first years. as we started filing scouting reports on Ty Smith. And we were in love with this player's draft year. The flyers were ready to take him, uh, his draft year right around when he was taken. So there's a guy that they had rated right there. Anyway, first year he fit in well, played well last year. He stumbled a bit. We think this is a guy that, that will be ready to help us right away. So go back, do your research, um, you know, the best trades in hockey for teams are where you get more than you thought you were going to get, and that's kind of the bet. And the the bet you make when you make a trade is that you think you're going to be right on the player and they're going to be wrong on the player. Remember, everyone hangs up the phone after a trade. And you know this, Bob, and you know this, John, and the player, the, the GM hangs up and says, man, we just made a great trade. Both teams hang up the phone and say the same thing.
0: Yeah, and you invariably. hope they're both right. Yeah. I'm intrigued by um, what your philosophy is. I have a number of questions on this regard, but philosophically, do you want to have a team that excels offensively or excels defensively? Or are you? is, is the answer to that question dictated by the talent you have right now?
2: Well, uh, yes. I mean, <laughs> anyone who tells you it's not dictated but what they have right now is should be doing something else. The fact of the matter is um, you're going to have to play to your strengths, regardless of what type of team you have. If, if you can't score goals, you better be able to stop goals. Better, better be able to prevent them. Um, what we are, have built here with Mike Sullivan and Ron Hextall is really a firm believer in this, as am I, is we play Pittsburgh Penguins hockey. We play fast hockey. We try to not have the puck in our end for very long. We try to generate consistently, generate offensive chances. We are a a thinking team. We are a a foot speed team. So we rely on our brains and our feet. And we like to score goals, but we we feel we can prevent them too. So there's no question about Penguins hockey is fast hockey, up-tempo hockey, high-scoring
0: hockey. But philosophically, you would not always, in all the places you've been and all the people you've been around and worked with, you would not always be on the same page. I would assume that you would have general managers. You would have had coaches who have a slightly different or maybe dramatically different philosophy on the kind of hockey they want to play. And more specifically, different opinions on the players that you may be considering acquiring. At the end of the day, does that become problematic?
2: No, absolutely. It's important. I think that that type of discussion is critical to make your team better. Like, there's no point in us bringing in players that our coach doesn't like. We really like our coach. We think Mike Sullivan's the top coach. Mm. So we're not going to fight with him over players. And it's, it's always been this way. So I would call Mark Crawford when I was in Vancouver and say, I got a shot at getting McCown. What do you think? And if he said, I hate him, then we'd move on.
1: Well, he would he be said, right.
2: <laughs> if he said, I like him. Then we continue the discussion. You don't don't make your trades in a vacuum. You never want to get a player, and then the coach turned to you and say, what the hell am I going to do with this guy? That's dysfunctional as an organization. So, yes, Bob, you have dissent, you have differing views, and you have to reach a consent, and at the end of the day, you reach a consensus, and at the end of the day, we have a GM. His name is Ron Hextall, and he's excellent, and he makes the final call. But yeah, we get input from everyone. It's actually a constructive, uh, interesting process where people will say, I don't think we should do this deal. But then if the group says we do, then we all keep our mouths shut and we do the deal.
0: How often does that – just sorry, John, one more. How often does that happen, Uh, you know, a a dispute internally about whether to pursue a deal or not with a particular player?
2: Well, I remember one of my first meetings – When I was there, when I worked for Pat, we had a very heated discussion about a potential trade. And the late, great Murray Oliver felt very strongly about a trade. And the late, great Pat Quinn felt it was a good trade. And I fought with Murray on it. We made the trade. It ended up being a trade for Yerky Lume. I mean, Murray Oliver was right. (laughs) That was a great trade for us. And so that type of dissent, I think, is critical to for a team to be successful is that I've got to present what I think and then Pat's got to present or whoever the other guys are and then Pat's got to make the call back in the day. And so I think that type of process goes on everywhere. And I remember Pat Quinn saying to me after one of those heated meetings, he said, look, dissent, dissent is critical. He said, I don't want everyone to agree with me. I want people to disagree with me. That type of dissent that type of conflicting views, that's really important for a team to get better. And I think that's what I learned working for Pat and certainly how we do things here. I remember when Bob Murray joined us in Vancouver, we had a meeting right after Bob Murray came on board. We had a meeting and a scout in the meeting said to me, you're out of your mind if you think about this. You're out of your mind. And I said, "Okay, that's fine. And afterwards, Bob Murray said to me, you want me to clean that up? And I'm like, clean what up? I, I didn't even know what he was talking about. And he said well no one talks to bob Pulford that way and i said well i don't know how they do it in chicago or how they did it there bob when you worked there but in vancouver pat quinn wanted that dissent he wanted that shouting he wanted the disagreement and i wanted it here too so to me it's a healthy thing where i can say to hexi i don't think this makes sense and then he can decide the way all the evidence and say no i'm doing it so i think that's the a normal process and a healthy process
1: you, you you've always tried thrived on conflict that goes back to your parents and everything doesn't it i mean have, have everybody having an opinion right
2: yes exactly that's the way we we're raised and in an irish catholic family i'm not sure there's any other way to to raise kids the only difference was in our family the three older boys would usually settle that conflict in a more traditional mean
1: <laughs> speaking of more traditional mean um did how well did you know Ron Hextall when you when you were put together in Pittsburgh
2: not that well uh actually he's a private guy so he's a quiet guy he's a thoughtful guy he's a Brandon guy grew up in Manitoba and those are the best people in the world thoughtful people and he's a man of few words when he doesn't want to he can talk you know you have a beer and talk fishing with him he can talk like anybody but He's thoughtful, and um, I watched him work, and I measured him. I'm, I'm evaluating, and, and it, like I used to tell people, I interview people for jobs 365 days a year. Hmm. So I remember, you know, I go to a junior game and say say, uh, the game starts at 7 o'clock, and so the meetings will be at 5.30. So a lot of guys get to the rink at 6, say hi to the coach, and then go watch the game. I get to the rink at 5 or quarter to 5. I meet with both coaches. I go to the the visiting coach and say, hey, how's it going? Well, what do you like? What's going on? And then I go meet with the home team coach. And then at 530, they break it off and start their meetings. And I go up and sit in the rink. And it's it's the best time of the day in the rink. The rink's quiet. It's dark. The lights aren't on yet. They're making popcorn. Smells great. But it's quiet. And I sit there and I'd say, I feel like a GM right now. It's a magical moment. But that was how working at it was. That's how you get to find out more about your players and do all that. So I would evaluate people, and I would watch Ron Hextall work. I would talk to him, and uh, I was very impressed with him. So when I got a chance to work with him, I jumped at it.
0: With uh, Brian Burke, we'll take a quick break and come back with uh, more after these messages. McCowan, Shannon, Brian Burke is uh, with us from the Pittsburgh Penguins. I'm not sure exactly how to ask this question. I certainly don't want to offend anybody, but um, I'm wondering. (laughs) Yeah, for this time, but for for somebody in your position, um, how do you feel about if you're dealing with an ex-player and a significant ex-player like Hextall? um, How how do you Uh, adjust relate to the position that they played because there is a, there is a sense sometimes in sports that a, you know, a a pitcher has to be the the pitching coach and um, a a, a goaltender hasn't, goaltenders generally haven't had great success as coaches. Um, How do you deal with that? Or do you even think about it?
2: Well, I I think, yeah, you have to think about everything, Bob. I think the fact of the matter is goaltenders as a position, as a group of players, have made a very small contribution at the NHL level at the the GM position. Very few of them have been successful. But Jimmy Rutherford was a goaltender. He's got three rings, right? Yep. Um, Kenny? uh, Kenny Holland was a goaltender. Not a very good one. I played against him in the minors. He wasn't very good, but (laughs) he's had a great career. So I don't think you could ever say, well, this guy is a goaltender, so we can discount what he thinks. Hexie has learned. He worked for LA. He worked for Philly. He's worked for two top organizations. He's held different jobs. He's worked his way up. He knows the game. I trust him completely. So uh, the notion that a goaltender can't do it, it's all about your training and your openness and your mind being open to other ideas. And he's, he's got that, and he's trained beautifully. And you look at what's happened here. We've had cap problems since we got here, and X's gone and found good bargain values, signed an important players for us at good salaries ever since we got here.
1: Um, Actually, you, you, t- you were talking about uh, Mike Sullivan earlier, and and you and Ron inherited Mike Sullivan. Um, you knew you knew Mike from the USA Hockey program, obviously. But um, what is it that makes Sullivan? so effective as a coach in this league
2: well if you let's go back if you said ron hextall who'd you think of this coach or that coach that coached in washington and he would say he would have an opinion because Mm -hmm. he would have met this coach he would have watched him coach he would have seen things he liked seen things he so he would have had an opinion on that guy long before he met him and yeah i worked with sully uh, in, in the World Cup, but I knew Sully before that cause he was a coach in Providence. I uh, watched him in Vancouver, watched him work his way up, and I always admired him. So um, I, I wouldn't say I knew Mike Sullivan because of the World Cup. I knew Mike Sullivan because it's our job to know people. And like I say, go to the rink early and meet with the coach. like I still do that to this day. I'll go early and go over to the other side and say to the coach, how you doing? Even guys I don't know. I'll walk up and a guy will say, "Hi, I'm Rod." Remember, I met Rob Murray one night in Providence. Went over to say hello. He said, I can, "Can I help you?" So, "No, I just stopped by to say hello." So I think that uh, with Sully, we all had a sense of what a good guy he was. He was a real honest player. Played over seven hundred NHL games, mm-hmm. and that's not you know that's not easy to do. And he wasn't a great great player. He wasn't a superstar. He was an honest player that worked his ass off. I had to learn the game to play the game well. Same as me. Like the reason I succeeded as far as I did was I wasn't any good, but I listened, I worked, I was tough. And so you have to become a coach's friend where the coach knows he can trust you in the last minute of the game and all that. That's what Sully was as a player. So I'm not surprised he turned into a a successful coach. I'm really impressed with him. Our preparation, our practices – uh, the, the work that goes into how our team plays is really impressive.
0: Do you believe coaches have a a critical lifespan as coaches on one team that eventually the message gets lost on the players? Yes.
2: But I also believe that that, that lifespan, that shelf life, is is dictated by how smart you are, how reasonable you are, how well you listen, how well you adapt. I think the harder you are in your players, the shorter the shelf life. So I think you, and our coach is a thinking coach, a teaching coach. He'll try to talk you into the reasons to do this rather than threaten you. And so you have a much longer runway, a much longer shelf life as a thinking, teaching coach than you do as an old school coach. And that's evolved, obviously. The millennial player is different than it was, than he was mm. 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Oh, of course, yeah. coaches had to evolve too.
0: Yeah. Who's the longest serving coach right now in the NHL, guys? Is, I think it's is, John Cooper. I was going to say John Cooper.
1: Cooper and then Sully, I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's
1: not very long when you think about it, though. It's no. like it's eight years. But that's a problem. Like that. That's
2: a problem in our industry. The, the, the quick firing of coaches and GMs is absurd in our league and in pro sports in general. So I've, I've made that rant on TV a number of times. I really believe it. I think change is too quick. And I think that you're dealing with 32 teams now mm. and that math has changed. I remember saying this to you guys in the room as we would add expansion teams and Tampa came in and, and uh, who else came in with Tampa Ottawa. That year? Ottawa, Ottawa came in that year. I remember everyone say, yeah, yeah, we got two more, two more jobs for GMs. I'm like, yeah, yeah. And you got two more teams that'll knock your team out in the playoffs. So the math, when I was a rookie GM, you remember when there were five teams that missed the playoffs? <laughs> 21 teams and 16 yeah. teams made it. Cheerio. So it was pretty simple to get back in, make a couple small deals. Now you can miss the playoffs and miss for several years, many years, and still not get back in there. So the math has changed. And I don't think the ownership, not our ownership, because they've been great, but I don't think the ownership groups around the league have, have taken note of the math. So after the first round, there's eight teams left. So you play for seven days, you work all year and 16 teams get in seven days later, roughly eight, maybe nine days later, you're down to eight teams. And that math is daunting for owners that don't understand it.
1: I think there were 12 coaches changes either during the season or just after the season ended this year, Brian, and the ones that were changed during the season. And you take a look at one of your old teams and what Bruce Boudreau did in Vancouver that his success as a coach will justify coaches being fired and having short shelf life. I mean, look what Daryl did in Calgary in a short period of time, really. So that's oh, there's a there, there's your owner, you know, tapping you on the shoulders, the manager saying, look what they're doing over there.
2: <laughs> Aren't they? Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah, we messed up a lot of teams. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, uh, but I've long been of the belief, Berkey, that. In many occasions, not all by any stretch of the imagination, but in many occasions, coaches are fired by general managers who believe their job is in some jeopardy if they don't do that. And I believe it happens in every single sport. Agree or not?
2: Yes. No question. But that's, that's overall, I think there are linked issues that patience is not a virtue in pro hockey and it's, and it's, it's unfortunate. So I think you're right. I think the decision-making process is I always looked at my team and said, are we good enough to win? We're good enough to win. I expect us to, to win, to be in the playoffs. We're not good enough to win. That's my fault. I'm not going to make a coaching change. That thinking has changed now.
1: So, so when we hear, oh, the coaches lost the players, uh, how much influence do the players have in all of this?
2: Oh, they have a lot. They always have. The, no- the notion is that that's a recent development that players have strength in the room as players that they didn't have before. They've always had that strength. And yes, you can lose the room. You can you can get off course with your team and lose the room completely. And it's almost impossible to get it back. So that's a real thing. When people talk about a player losing the room. That's a real thing. That's a series of body blows to the, to the coaching from the coach to the players where the players say, well, that's not right. And you've got to think at least a little bit like what works for the group.
1: Yeah. But but have you ever walked into a room as, as a manager or as the president of hockey operations and said, boys, I'm not firing that guy. I'm going to fire some of you. Yeah. And the I, reaction I, well, is what?
2: I've walked in and told teams that I've walked in and told teams. I'm not trading anybody. Like I remember the, the, the year, I think it was nine 11. We had a terrible start. I think we were three, eight and four. And I called a team meeting and I said, I, had, I put a list of uh, attributes up on the wall, winning battles, losing battles, winning face-offs, losing face-offs, uh, getting pucks deep and whatever. And I went through and I said to the guys last year, we had a great start. We did all these things. Here's what we're doing now. We have a terrible start. So I said, the logical assumption is I'm going to fire a couple guys in here or fire the coach. I'm not firing the coach, mm. and I'm not trading anyone. I believe in this group. I said, I will give you my word that I will leave this team intact. I had a couple ice time issues, I a couple of players that wanted out. I said, other than these two guys who knew who they were, and I named them, other than these two guys who I will free, feel free to trade at any time, I'm going to keep this group together. Which makes me either the smartest guy in Western Canada or the dumbest.
1: <laughs> speaking of Western Canada,
2: and hang uh, on, and we went on a tear. We played like seven thirty winning hockey after that and made them at hundred points.
1: And was that uh, the wasn't the Dan Cloutier year? Was it? I, I'd have to look it up. Okay. Um, speaking it was a of great West- speech, oh, are they, aren't they all <laughs> of you? I mean, come on now. Um, speaking of Western Canada two players Americans decide they want one way or the other out of Calgary does that raise a red flag of you know players not wanting to play in, in Canada for you
2: well I mean you got first off I work for a us-based team so it's not an issue that's affected us in any way correct uh, but I think it's 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 a fair thing for people to say what does this mean I know one thing when I worked in Calgary I loved working in Calgary and the players love playing there. So this, this is tax driven more than anything in my mind. It's uh, I remember talking to our players one time in Calgary, someone was saying about getting traded here or there. And I said, you guys will look back when your careers are over, you will look back and you will look back on this time in Calgary. And you will say the best years I spent in my life in the NHL were the years I spent in Calgary, with the Calgary Flames where people loved the game and people loved you and people cared about you and cared about the results and cared about the standings and you're in a great city. And I said, don't ever forget that. And I guarantee you one or two or three or four of those guys that heard that speech will remember that and say he was right. So it's, it's gotta be, I think tax driven mostly, but I, I don't think there's uh playing in Canada is special still in my mind for working for having worked for three Canadian teams Um, and, and felt privileged to do it
1: by the way, uh, both, by the way, both of those players have gone to the Eastern conference and and will create more headaches for you now than ever before.
2: Yeah, that's, that's, that's a problem, but that's look, the, the teams get better and get worse. They add players, they, they subtract players. Um, our job doesn't change. Our job is to win. And if the teams that we're playing get better, that's fine. We think we got better too.
0: Uh, you talked about, you know, being in markets like Pittsburgh, where you come to the to the red light and you don't get honked at, where you, I, I know for a fact, because you and I socialized on a few occasions, um, you got recognized everywhere you went in Toronto, and I'm sure in Calgary and in Vancouver as well. Uh, a lot of it has to do with the kind of personality that you have, and whether you like that or can accept that, or whether that really bothers you. Don't you believe that?
2: Yeah, but I, I, you got to remember my first job was working for Pat (laughs) Quinn. And I remember uh, really early on my first year there, a columnist in Vancouver wrote something that was really tough on me. And I was really upset. And Pat Quinn called me in and said, he said, you got to stop this right now. Why are you reading this? He said, you have to put this aside. You cannot let this be part of the fabric. Of your decision making, your life. You can't let it get you down. You got to ignore it. And it was a great lesson. I took it to heart. So I, I, I truly don't care. But I, I love the fact that the passion for hockey is that, yeah, in Toronto, I get recognized everywhere. And most of them are really nice. The odd personal lay into me about trades I made or Phil Kessel sure. or whatever. But the, most people are really nice about it. But um, the passion that follows the game around is critical to our success as a league. And so, yeah, that's, that's, uh, I mean, I, I, got recognized yesterday, a real nice guy. I was having breakfast with my girlfriend and, uh, as I walked as he walked out, he stopped saying, hey, I love the pens. Thanks for coming here. You know, just, uh, just a fan. So it does, it happens in Pittsburgh. It happens everywhere. The best part, if you don't want to get recognized, the best part was the pandemic. Because
0: everyone had a mask well, yeah, Yeah, no kidding. <laughs>
1: well, I'm <laughs> well, not sure you can find an upside of the pandemic, Brian, but okay. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, and I think you probably would agree. I know that uh, to a much lesser extent, this is, happens to me. I, I got no problem with somebody saying, hi, how are you? Or one quick question or, you know, um, it's when they pull up a chair at dinner. When you're sitting having dinner <laughs> with somebody and they pull up a chair and start, hmm. they want to know, answer every question. I mean, I that's, a pl- that's a bit much. And you get that, too.
2: I got on a plane in Vancouver one time when I was a GM. So I went there. What did I go there in 98? And um, I sat down in business class. I think it was it was Air Canada. And the guy next to me said, said out loud, he said, good God, I can't believe this. I get Brian Burke for four hours. <laughs> and I said, you can ask one question before we take off. You can ask one question after we land. Otherwise, no, this isn't Brian Burke show and tell for four hours. I got work to do.
0: Good for you. Good for you. <laughs> hey, well, hey. you have to sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Quick, John, we got to go.
1: Yeah, it just, uh, you know, we haven't talked about the ownership change. You're, you're now part of a conglomerate with the Fenway Sports Group. How has it affected yeah. your job and how does it affect the club? Well,
2: I'm watching soccer for the first time in my life. <laughs> um Liverpool won this weekend, so they, they won the first of the championships that are available to – we have a series of them that we're eligible for. And I'm looking forward – I'm actually look, trying to plan to go to Liverpool for a game I've never been. And I think that would be bucket list stuff to see a game there. They've been great. Fenway Sports Group, they own the Red Sox. They own uh, Liverpool. They own us. They own uh, Fenway Race or Rouse Racing, NASCAR uh, team. They've been terrific. They they ask a lot of questions. You, you forgot really the big guys. team.
1: You forgot the big team, the Red Sox. You mentioned all
2: yeah. oh, the Red Sox. I thought <laughs> I said the Red Sox. <laughs> no, you oh. did.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. John's hearing no, Red, Red Sox,
2: Liverpool, Penguins, Fenway, mm-hmm. uh, uh, our uh, Racing Group, and uh, and they're looking to add too. So that's they're not done yet. So they've been great to work
1: with and work for. They've been terrific.
0: Well, Berkey, uh, we wish you good luck with uh, going to see Liverpool, assuming that happens sometime soon. Try and stay awake. Don't forget to sing the songs. No, just try and stay awake. It's such a boring game. Bob
2: McCown nailed me on TV one time where he said, I went to a Toronto FC game, and he said to me, Tell me you weren't at that game. I said, I was there. I was cheering, and he said, Okay. We were you there when the game ended, I was like, "You bastard!" No, I wasn't. <laughs>
1: By the way, I still remember you celebrating the Stampeders victory. So you, it's it's not as if you, this is nothing new. You love you loved your sports teams, and yeah. when the Stamps won the Grey Cup, you were right there on the field with them. So
2: Nick Lewis was out there on a horse. He he rode. He grabbed the horse off a of pick six, and he was riding at BC Place on a horse. I'll never forget that.
0: <laughs> Berkey, we got to go, but we, uh, you know, we love you and uh, we miss you here in Toronto, uh, not having you around. And um, uh, I know you pop in every now and again, but hopefully we can get together soon for a bite to eat. Thanks, pal, so. for That'd joining us. Thank you. All the best. Brian Burke, back after this. So, our thanks to Brian Burke for uh, being with us. Uh, hey,
1: you, you talked about uh, people uh, uh, walking up and sitting at the table for dinner and, <laughs> and joining you. Yeah. Uh, I got to tell you, Bob, Sunday at the grocery store, two people walked up, avid listeners, you know, avid listeners of the podcast. Where? How, how do you deal with that, McCowan? I don't. Oh, okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's rather insulting. Um, well, I,
1: no, I just, you know, I'm just, I'm just not you, them. Oh, no, but, but they still listen, man.
0: Well, they still listen. They
1: that's Steve Guthrie in Oakville.
0: Well, oh, now you're naming names
1: well he i when you but so when you meet people yeah do you do you say hey are you bob McCowan? i used to be um uh, and do you ever ask them their name never see i do all the time i was taught that hey how you doing what's your name i'm steve guthrie well, hey,
0: well nice to meet you, steve. they could answer it and i wouldn't remember two oh, seconds see, I, later i wouldn't see, remember see, I, 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 I i have this thing about names that happens to me all. It happened to me at dinner the other night. I got, I met a, a pal of ours, and he was with somebody. What
1: was his, what was
0: his name? I'm not going to mention him. No. Oh. And at least not publicly. I'll mention to you privately. <laughs> and he introduced me to to a fellow who was a fairly prominent business guy. And I I talked to him for maybe thirty seconds, walked away from the table, and immediately could not remember who what his name was. Really. I oh, just, no, it, yeah. I I can't get it to sink in. That's the,
1: know. that's part of the, uh, part of, I think when, when people walk up to you and you say, Hey, you're, you're so, and sorry. Yeah, I am.
0: So what's your name? And that makes them feel good too. Well, and I think you have the, the perception of you is that you are a kindly, friendly gentleman. Absolutely. And so people will talk to you. Yeah. Berkey and I are probably very similar. People are afraid maybe even intimidated, although that's a I don't like oh, that word. Berkey Berkey for sure. Well I, I'm sure I I know I get it. Yeah,
1: but I, it, it it all changes when you wear the sunglasses. I
0: always wear the sunglasses I know the so it never, the, changes. So it never so changes.
1: When you so you're out wearing sunglasses and you you know you're walking and they go, Oh, there he is, Bubba Cowan. I'm not talking about yeah, him. But- he scares the shit out of me.
0: I'll tell you a quick story. I was in London, Ontario at a business meeting, and I was with somebody who worked for me, and we walked down the street, went from the meeting to lunch. That was maybe a five, 10 ten-minute walk. And, of course, I never, I never look anybody in the eye. I look straight ahead because I don't want to get stopped, and that actually works. And when we got to the restaurant, the fellow I was with said, it's unbelievable we're in here in London and, and like 50 people, recognized you on the walk up mm. i didn't rec- i didn't see one of them yeah. i didn't get i didn't realize one of the rec- the the recognitions so it's just how you how you act in any event uh we must off we'll be back tomorrow for john shannon bob McCowan. see ya <laughs>